Good morning, everyone. If you don't know it yet, Cross Church is all about making disciples. In fact, we believe that this has to be our guiding principle. Jesus, before he left this earth, he gave us a command. We call it sometimes the Great Commission. It's a passage of Scripture that absolutely every believer needs to know. You should have memorized it by now if, you have been a, if you've been serving Christ for any length of time. And what did Jesus tell his disciples to do before, they, before he left this earth? He said, go into all the world and basically make disciples. That's the commission. That's what we're about. And so every decision that we make here at Cross Church... Every dollar we spend has got to be able to support that commission, that command. I get uh, calls all the time, I mean regularly, asking our church to support this ministry and that ministry and to have this ministry or that ministry come into our church and to teach and, and so on and so forth. But here's the thing. We believe that whatever we do and any dollars we spend, it's got to go towards the fulfillment of that great commission. So, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does that mean? That word disciple um, has as a, at its root the same word that we uh, have for dis- discipline. Those who are disciples of Jesus Christ are disciplined in the ways of Christ, are disciplined in the following of Jesus Christ. And to be a disciple means that you have the disciples' habits. That means that you do what Jesus Christ wants you to do. You do what Jesus Christ does. So here's what Jesus says to his disciples one day in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And let's take a look at that. And if you would read it with me. Then Jesus said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways Take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, this passage of Scripture is quoted often. The problem is, is that as, as well as we know this verse, and as often as we quote this verse, we probably ignore it that much. We ignore it and even misunderstand it. To be a follower of Jesus Christ means that you turn from your selfish ways, It means that you take up your cross daily, and it means that you follow Jesus. You cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ. You cannot call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ if you don't do this. So it's critical that you you know this verse, and it's critical that you live your life according to this scripture verse. I'm going to tell you, and I think probably most people here today wouldn't know this, but not everybody who calls himself or herself a Christian is in fact a Christian. Not everybody who goes to church is actually a believer or a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us very clear and very tight parameters. How many know that there's such a thing as a cultural Christian? Does everybody know that? A cultural Christian is somebody who likes to be around Christians, who likes to be identified with the Christian crowd, They're the ones that are going to say, you know what, I like being around Christians. Yeah, I'll call myself a Christian. I'll even become a member of the church if the church will have me. I will will put five bucks in the offering plate when it goes by. I like the church. I like what it does. It does good things around the world. It stands for what's good. It uh, 
It has good values. I like these values. In fact, I like the people that hold to these values. I'm going to tell you something. To be a follower of Jesus Christ means that you're not just a cultural believer. It means that you are serious about doing what Jesus tells us to do in this passage. We're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to explore that. Being a disciple means that you no longer follow the ways of this world. It means that you no longer follow your own ways. It means you do what Jesus wants you to do. Now, when I first came across this passage of Scripture, I was about 20 years old. I was in Bible college. I just had just gotten my new NIV Bible. That's about the time that the NIV Scripture came out. And it's really, really hitting the world in a big way. Uh, for many, many, many years, hundreds of years, the standard Scripture was uh, the King James Bible. And uh, some had ventured off into the Revised Standard Version, and some had even gone over to the New American Standard Bible. But the NIV spoke... Uh, in, in the language of, of everyday people. So I got this Bible, and I was just, I just could not get enough of it. I was totally mesmerized by it. When I came across this verse, I felt like God had just got me by the throat. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And you're reading the scripture, and suddenly God stops you in your track. I mean, I, I think I still got his fingerprints on my neck. Stopped me dead in my tracks and said, Alan, you have got to stop now and think about what this verse means. What does it stand for? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if, you, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now, you'll notice that Jesus says it to a crowd. Can I just say this to you today? There's many people in the crowd that loves the things that the church does and loves the things that the church stands for. People loved the, disciple, the, the, the miracles that Jesus was doing. People loved the messages that Jesus was preaching was all very radical stuff. In fact, lots of times what Jesus was saying was, uh, was against what the teachers of the law were saying. And so, I mean, this was radical stuff. In fact, it was even scandalous. And everybody loves a scandal. Everybody knows that, right? So these, this, these people, this crowd was following Jesus along. And now you'd think that Jesus would think, well, look at all, this, look at all these people. What can I say to win the crowd over? What can I say to, to, to make this crowd my dedicated and loyal followers? Well, Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, if anything, Jesus tries to thin out the crowd by making these, this very... Uh, very specific and very narrow definition of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's, we're talking about radical followership this morning. We're talking about uh, what it means to really follow Christ. So, so here's what we need to do this morning. We need to look, first of all, at what Jesus says here. You must turn from your selfish ways. Now, what do we mean by that? I'm going to tell you right now that the very beginning of all truth about human beings is this statement. We're, we're all selfish. We are fundamentally at the core of who we are and what we are. We are self-centered. And Jesus says right off the bat, if you want to be my follower, then you can't be selfish. So what Jesus is saying is that you can no longer go on being who you are. You can no longer go on the way you are if you want to be a follower of me. That's what Jesus is saying. It's pretty radical stuff. Jesus is essentially calling everybody selfish. So folks, um, in case you didn't know it, 
I am a very selfish person. But don't get uppity because you're selfish too. In fact, everybody here is selfish except for Gloria. <laughs> no, she is too. Just a, just a teeny bit. The fact of the matter is, is all, every single human being here today is self-centered. We are by nature self-centered. And this is the great struggle that we all face. Look at the person beside you. Now, doesn't that look like a selfish person? Yeah, yeah. So thank you very much, Pastor Allen, for welcoming me into your church and then insulting me when we get here. Okay, look, it's not, it's not, my, it's not my desire, obviously, to, to insult anybody or to turn anybody off or make anybody feel like I'm not coming back to this church. But what I want to do today is I want to reveal to you truth that will change your life. In order to, to fully understand this notion or this idea that we are self-centered, what we need to do is we need to go back to the Garden of Eden. And what do we find in Genesis chapter 3? Well, I'm always going back to Genesis chapter 3. Everybody here knows that. But what do we find? Adam and Eve are tempted by, by Satan through that snake. And why do they respond to the temptation? Why do they give in to the temptation? I'll tell you for one reason. Because of selfishness, because of self-centeredness. The Bible says that, that Eve, Adam, they looked at that fruit and they regarded it. It looked good to the eyes. It looked good to eat. And besides of which, if they ate it, they would get to be like God. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. This is, this is the, the theological phrasing that goes along with that. And by the way, I'm not going to get into that today. You can research that on your own. But you understand, we're looking, about, we're looking at, at selfishness. It's good for me. I want it. I've got to have it. Isn't that what selfishness is? I've got to have it my way. This is going to be good for me. This is what I want. And Adam and Eve, rather than listening to God and doing what God wanted them to do, they did what they wanted to do. We call this selfishness. Now, I'm going to tell you, I've been in the ministry now for 30 years. I started in ministry in 1983, and I'm going to tell you that over the years, I've done a lot of marriage counseling. I've done a lot of counseling for all sorts of issues, and here's what I have discovered about every single problem that everybody here faces. At the root of it all is selfishness. Marriages break up not because of incompatibility and any other nonsense you want to talk about. It, it, marriages break up because of selfishness. Because someone or both were extremely selfish. In fact, my experience is, is that usually if there's marriage problems, then we've got two selfish people on our hands. You say, Pastor, you're making such a broad, broad statement. But think about it. Be honest about it. Think about your own life. Every time you have a problem, if you're truly and completely honest about this, you'd have to say, yeah, you know what? I am being selfish. I am putting myself first. I am putting my own interests first. But you see, the definition of a believer, of a follower of Jesus Christ, is that he no longer puts his own interests first. He, he swallows his pride, and he puts first the interests of God. That's the fulfillment of the first great, com first great commandment which is what, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? What's the second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. So every time you are not loving God or loving the people in your life, you're being selfish. That is the root of all your problems. You think about it. 
Why do you have problems? Why are you struggling today? Why are you in, in the predicament that you're in today? Why are you financially strapped? Why are you struggling in your family, in your job, in your marriage? Why is your health suffering? It's because you put yourself first. And Jesus says, and this is why, this is why we call Christianity the gospel, because through Jesus Christ, he teaches us how to live in this world and how to get it right. Now listen, every one of us here is being bombarded on a regular basis by a culture, by a society that says that the thing that's going to make us happy is when you get it your way. This is what, this is what our culture does. This is, this is the, the genius behind the marketing campaigns is because they're not appealing to what is good for you. They're appealing to what is the basest part of you, and that is your selfishness. They know that if they can appeal to your selfishness, you're probably going to give in. You're going to probably buy their product. And Jesus comes along and says, look it, I've got a better way of living. But the, the thing is this, is you've got you to trust me, and you've got to do it my way. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is the good news. This is the gospel, that when you do it God's way, then suddenly, folks, your life is transformed. You see, you can come to me with your problems and come to me for marriage counseling, and I'm going to give you the best counseling you're going to get anywhere. But I cannot help you if you will not change. I cannot help you turn your situation around unless you're willing to surrender and to submit to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And the teachings of Jesus Christ are this. You can't live for yourself. I'm going to tell you, being in ministry for 30 years, I've heard people's complaints. I've heard their whining. I've heard their, their grumbling, and this is no good, and that's no good, and it should be like this, and why isn't it more like that, and how come this, and how come you don't remember me, and how come there's nothing for me, and, and make something for me, and pastor, start a program for me. And I want to say, do you not know anything about following Jesus Christ? It's not all about you. It's all about Jesus and his command to die to yourself, to deny yourself, to turn from your selfish ways. I'm going to tell you, selfishness, folks, is our biggest problem. In fact, selfishness, living for yourself, doing what you want over what God wants, it's an addiction. That's right. An addiction. Because the thing that makes you, makes you happiest, it makes you think you're going to be happiest, is by doing what you want to do. And Jesus comes along and he preaches a truth that goes against what our instincts are. And he says, hey, the thing that's going to make you happy is not doing what you want. It's not living for yourself. Has anybody ever heard of the program called AA? Alcoholics Anonymous. Anybody heard, heard of that? My name is Alan, and I am a sinner. I am selfish. The very first step in AA is this. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Do you want to know something? This is actually the first step of salvation, the very first step of becoming a Christian. You ready for this, folks? The very first step of Christianity says this. I... Admit that I am powerless over my selfishness. That my life has become unmanageable. That's the situation with many people here today. You're, you're in trouble. You're struggling. You're having a difficult time. I, I recommend that you think about that first step in AA. We admit we're powerless. 
I'm going to tell you, every natural instinct cries out against this idea of personal powerlessness and hopelessness. Remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. What is it? It's pride. Too proud to admit I'm selfish. Too proud to admit I'm wrong. Too proud to admit what I really am. Upon entering AA, this is what they say, we soon take quite another view of this absolute humiliation. Our admission of personal powerlessness finally becomes the bedrock upon which happy and purposeful lives may be built. Listen to, let the Spirit of God speak to your heart now. Because the thing that's going to bring happiness and purpose to your life is the day that you stop living for yourself. The very first step is to accept our devastating weakness and all its consequences. That comes right out of a paper from AA. I can tell you, folks, it's a beautiful, beautiful description of where we're at before we surrender our lives to Christ. Now, if some of you think, man, that sounds an awful lot like Christianity. Well, there's a reason for that. AA was actually, be, it was actually begun by a couple of ministers. They were trying to find a solution to help people overcome their addiction to alcohol. And folks, listen to me. The, the problem that the alcoholic experiences is no different than the problem that any of us experiences. And it's, it's selfishness. In fact, I think any alcoholic would admit that the most self-centered people on the face of the earth are, in fact, alcoholics and drug addicts. Why? It's because it's all about them. But before anybody gets uppity and looks down their nose at the alcoholic or the one who struggles with an addiction, let me remind you that you also have within you, in your own heart, the same predilection to, towards self-centeredness and selfishness. And so, folks, when we come to that place where we recognize, man, we're wretched. Until we get to that place, we never know or never recognize how much we really need Jesus. You know what? I, I've mentioned this before, but at, almost at every funeral, they sing the hymn Amazing Grace. Anybody know that song, Amazing Grace? And whether it's a Christian funeral or, or a non-Christian funeral, that seems to be the hymn that everybody sings. And sometimes we've got a bag, bagpipe player, uh, you know, wailing away in the background, and, and everybody's crying, and they're singing with all their being, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. And they keep singing it, not thinking about what they're saying. Now, some clever, some clever people have now tried, tried to take the word wretch out of that, that hymn. But the fact of the matter is, folks, what's so amazing about grace, what's so amazing about the love of God, is that he reaches out to people who are so undeserving of his love. There's nothing attractive about a self-centered person. There's nothing attractive about a self-centered child. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And some of us grow up and we continue on in our self-centeredness. And we need the amazing grace of God. Now, here's the thing. This is what they said about AA at the very first days of this, of this movement. They said that they were a movement that primarily helped people who, uh, in their language, were the low-bottom cases. In other words, the people who were the most desperate, the ones who had hit rock bottom, the ones who were in the worst shape and the worst trouble, they were the ones that finally gave in to this program. But here's what they discovered. The less desperate couldn't admit the first step of hopelessness and powerless, and so they never, never went through the program, and they never got the help they needed. 
Can I just say this to you today? If you're sitting here today and you think, I've got it all together, Pastor, I don't need your help. I don't need Jesus' help. I don't need God's help. I like coming to hear the sermons. I love to, love to partake. But Pastor, don't, don't ask me to come to that place where I admit my hopelessness, my powerlessness, how much I need God. The proud man will say, Christianity is just a crutch. That's what my, my grandmother used to say. Christianity is a crutch. It's for weak people. And I would say, yes, that's right. It's for weak people. It's for you, Grandma. It's for me, Grandma. It's for you. You need God's grace. So here's the thing. Jesus calls us to admit that we are, in fact, powerless over our selfishness. That's why he says you must turn from your selfish ways. You have to admit that. You've got a problem. And this is the beginning. Listen to me. This is, this is, you want to know, what, you want to know happy, how to get happy and how to be happy and how to find purpose in life? Here's the start of it. Admit that you're selfish and you need help. That's the beginning of it. You say, well, what's the next step? Well, I'm glad you asked that because, again, we can turn to AA and find the next step. And the next step is this. We, this is what the second step is. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Isn't that fantastic? We discovered, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And what is that power that can restore us to sanity? It's none other than Jesus Christ himself. Now, I'm not going to go through all 12 steps of, of AA today. I'm just going to do through step one and step two. But here's what you need to know. If you're going to be happy, if you're going to find joy in this life, you first admit that you are powerless over your selfishness. And that's why you're in the trouble that you're in. And that's why you've come to this point in your life and you've had so much trouble. It's because of your selfishness. But the good news is, is that Jesus does not come to condemn you or to judge you, but to love you and to show you a better way. It's the way of unselfishness. And the only way that you're ever going to be able to live this unselfish life is by coming to Jesus Christ and believing in him and asking him to restore your sanity. Maybe you're here today, you're just feeling like, man, pastor, you describe my situation. I think I'm losing my sanity. My kids are driving me nuts. My husband's driving me nuts. My wife's driving me nuts. My, my boss is driving My coworkers, my finances, everything's driving me nuts. And you feel, wow, you feel an insanity threatening you. Well, I can tell you today that you can find relief from the insanity. And it's in Jesus Christ. The way that you are going to find hope and find power to overcome whatever things that you're facing in your life is through Jesus Christ. And the beginning of it is this, is that you need to turn from your selfish ways. You're here today with marriage problems. Selfishness is probably the problem. And I know what you're thinking. Yeah, she is really selfish, or he is really selfish. If he wouldn't be so selfish, then we wouldn't have these marriage problems. How many know that it takes two to tango? And everybody said? I don't know about that. I'm still not convinced, Pastor. I still think it's all her fault. The fact of the matter is, marriages break down because of selfish people. Marriage, families fall apart because of selfish people. Kids are estranged from their parents because of selfishness, and it goes on and on. You know the drill. I don't need to tell you. You understand this. As I'm speaking, it's clicking in your brain. You're getting what I'm saying. Well, Jesus goes on to say this. You've got to take up your cross. So you deny yourself, then you take up your cross. 
Now, what did Jesus mean by this when he said, you got to carry your cross? And I've heard a lot of people talk about the cross they have to bear. You know what I'm talking about? So a woman will be talking to her friend. She'd say, my husband is such a jerk. He's so lazy. He's a slob. Leaves his socks and his underwear everywhere. Doesn't take the garbage out. But he's the cross I have to bear. Heard that? And he's out with his friend saying, my wife is such an egg. She can't leave me alone. I can do nothing right. She's constantly put, bossing me around, constantly putting me down. But she's the cross I have to bear. Can I just tell you something right now? That's not the cross you have to bear. It has nothing to do with the cross. It's just two selfish people who think that living with each other is the cross they have to bear. I'm going to tell you, it's nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with the cross. It's to do with selfishness. And so if you're struggling in your marriage, in your family, with your kids, and people at work, then what you need to do is you need to go apologize. But it's not my fault. She started it. Can I just remind you of something? When Jesus Christ went to the cross, was it any of it his fault? When Jesus stretched out his hands and submitted himself to the cross, was any of it his fault? You know the Bible says that he was without sin. He was perfect. But here's the thing, and you've got to get this. The only way that you're going to overcome your problems the only way you're going to bring a solution to the difficulties and the struggles in your life is that somebody has got to say, I'll take responsibility for this. You say, Pastor, but it's not my fault. Tell it to Jesus, who died for you, who took away your sin. That's what the cross is all about. Anybody ever heard of Salvador Dali? great European, Spanish, I believe, artist. He painted a very famous uh, crucifixion picture, and it shows Jesus hanging on the cross. But you'll notice that his hands don't have nails in them. In fact, it looks like his hands are just there. And someone asked, what does that mean? What does it stand for? And here's what it means. Jesus, when he hung on the cross, when he died on the cross for your sins and for mine, He chose to do that. We think, we think that Jesus had no choice, that we forced Jesus to hang on that cross, that he did something to deserve that. But I'm going to tell you something. He went there on his own. He didn't have to do that. He could have called the legions of heaven down, and he could have destroyed the whole works of not only the Roman Empire, but everybody, anybody who got in his way. He went willingly and hung on the cross for you and me. He took responsibility. Now listen to me, folks. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that you go and fight for your rights all the time. It means that you deny yourself, you turn from your selfish ways, and you die to yourself. And you're willing to say, God, I'll take responsibility. You say, Pastor, doesn't that seem un- maybe a little bit... Uh, dishonest? No, it's not dishonest at all. It just means that someone's got to say, okay, we're going to let it go. Obviously, I've offended you. I don't know how I've offended you, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry for offending you. Now, is that so hard to do? For some reason, it is. Because we're selfish and we are proud. We don't want to admit that we're wrong. 
See a few husbands and wives nudging each other here this morning. Don't want to admit we're wrong. Just say sorry. I'm sorry. Obviously, I've hurt you. Obviously, I've offended you. And that's what you need to understand, folks. So even when you feel that your motives are pure, if the person in your life has been hurt or been offended by you, then their perception is that they've been hurt and offended by you. And the thing that's going to diffuse that, folks, is by doing what Jesus says. Deny yourself. Die to yourself. Because self has got to have it his way. Self has got to defend itself. Self has got to be right. Self can never be wrong. But when self is dead, when self is dead, self can say, I can take responsibility for this, no problem. When a husband and wife learns how to live like that, they're going to have a harmony and a love that will just absolutely astound them and everybody else. When a family starts functioning that way, when you start functioning that way at work, I can, I can take responsibility for this. Notice I didn't say blame. And that's the problem with this. That's why we don't want to take responsibility because I'm not the one to blame. Don't blame me. We're not talking about blame. We're talking about responsibility. And folks, listen, that's exactly what Jesus did when he went to the cross. He was not to blame, but he said, I'll take responsibility. Now, you've heard me say it before. Life is all about relationships. And that's what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to reconcile us to God and to each other. That's the gospel. That's what Christianity is about. It's about reconciliation. And if you're going to be reconciled to one another, and if you're going to get this life right, remember, life is about relationships. If you're going to get it right, then what you've got to understand is that someone's got to take responsibility for this relationship. I'm going to tell you, it'll be a game changer. You go home and take responsibility, and you're, first of all, your spouse is going to think that you're, you're, you're nuts, and they're going to think you're up to something, and then hopefully they'll finally recognize that you decided to be a Christian. Because a lot of people call themselves believers. A lot of us call ourselves Christians. But when it comes right down to it, we really don't live that way. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. You must turn from your selfish ways. You must take up your cross and follow me. Now, I'm going to tell you, to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, it doesn't mean that you just go to church every Sunday. It doesn't mean that you believe Jesus exists. It doesn't mean that you just got to get baptized or that you believe that, that Jesus can save us. Those things are all important. But that's not what makes you a believer. What makes you a follower of Jesus Christ is that you believe all of that, but one step further, you believe that you need to live this way, the way that Jesus calls you to live, which means all about denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Christ. You see, a lot of us, when we became Christians, we thought, oh, good, we're in. We're, we're, we're safe. We're getting to heaven. That's all we need to do. And then go and live any way we want. But can I tell you this? When you became a Christian, that was just the first step. Even AA has 12 steps. Listen, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, the beginning is surrendering your life, confessing that you're a sinner, confessing that you're selfish, asking God for help. The next step is to start living the way Jesus instructs us to live. You say, Pastor, who can live like this? I'm glad you asked that question because the disciples asked exactly the same question. The 12 said, well, who can live like this? Who can do all this? And they said, it's impossible. 
And Jesus said, yeah, you're right, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This is what it means to be born again. This is what it means to receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be spirit-led and controlled by the Spirit. Now you have the Spirit of God helping you live like this. Turning from your selfish ways and taking up your cross. What does that mean, taking up your cross anyways? Well, you saw the video clip. In ancient times when people were being put to death, the Romans would have them actually carry their cross to the place of execution. They would carry their cross to that place, they'd be nailed to that cross, and then the cross would be put in place, and the person then would die. Jesus actually did that. Now, why is Jesus using that language? I'll tell you why, folks, because he's trying to paint for you a picture of what your life needs to look like. You need to stop, stop living for yourself and start living according to God's plans. Back in the 1980s and 1990s, I mean, especially in the 80s, there's a great movement, a great cultural movement, and they started talking about people's dreams and the people's visions, and you have to have a dream. What's your dream, and what's your passion? What's the, what's the vision for your life, and what's the vision for your church, and what's the vision for your family? What's your mission statement? And there's a lot of talk about that. And a lot of pastors, a lot of churches taught it, preached it, embraced it. But can I tell you something? To be a follower of Jesus Christ means, and this is going to freak you out at first, but bear with me. To be a follower of Jesus Christ means that you no longer pursue your dreams or your visions. What, you, what it means is that you bring yourself to God and say, God, what is your dream for me? What is your vision for my life? And if your vision and your dream lines up with the, with the dream and the vision of God for your life, then two thumbs up. But if it's not, then folks, listen to me. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you've got to make a decision. Are you going to do what you want to do, or are you going to do what God wants you to do? Because I can tell you, every time you do what God wants you to do, that's when you're going to be happy, and that's when you're going to find purpose and fulfillment. You do what you want to do, folks, and you're going to be miserable all the time. And if you don't believe me, go and live that way and find out. And then when you're, when you're worn out, when you're beat up, when you're tired, when you're exhausted, when you have no peace and no joy anymore, come back to me and I'll remind you of what I said today. If you want to be happy, you need to die to yourself and you need to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Give, give God your agenda. You know, what, you know what's wrong with so much prayer today, folks? I hear this all the time. How come, Pastor, how come, nobody, how come God doesn't answer my prayers? And I'll tell you why. Because we, we have got this notion, this idea that God is some kind of a magic genie. Rub the lamp. God pops out and says, I'll grant you three wishes. How many know that that's a children's story? That's not in the Bible. That's not how God operates. When you pray and you say, God, I need your help, and this is what I want, here's how we approach God. We, we write out our list, we hand it to God, and say, God, do this. I'm going to tell you, folks, there's nothing more offensive to God than that approach to God. Can I remind everybody today what prayer is? Because a lot of people don't know. Prayer, very simply, is this. It's aligning your mind and your heart with the mind and the heart of God. And so no longer do you tell God what you want him to do. Now you come to God and you say, God, what do you want me to do? 
You see the difference between living for yourself and dying to yourself? Dying to yourself means I come to God and I find out what God wants. Now listen to this, folks. Because some people say, you know, the Bible says that God will answer my prayers and do amazing, I'll do amazing things and move mountains. And how come it doesn't work, Pastor? And I'll tell you why. It's because when you come to pray, you don't pray like this. You put yourself first and you tell God what to do. You have no intentions of surrendering your life to Christ. And so therefore, God doesn't answer your prayers and then there's no Pentecostal service. You want to see a move of the Holy Spirit in your midst, in your life, in your marriage, your family? Then come before God and get your mind aligned with God's mind. I'm going to tell you this. Jesus says in the next verse in Luke, or, uh, yeah, Luke 9, 24, he says this, if anyone does not carry his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. So listen to me, folks. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then this is how you're going to do it. Now, you can continue to be a cultural Christian, but I'm going to tell you that that's, that's not the one that gets you entry into heaven. Remember, we talked about eternal life. We talked about, about abundant life. We talked about new life. You've got to get that before, before you're going to get anywhere with God. That means a full and complete surrender to him. And you cannot be a, a disciple. You cannot call yourself a follower of Christ if you don't take up your cross. That means complete denial of self. Now, I'm going to close with this. You see that? You see this, the cross in our logo? You'll notice that it's not vertical. It's, it's on a slant. A lot of people say to me, Pastor, how come we don't have a cross in the church? Well, I've explained it the first week of our logo series, and I said the actual first symbol that represented the church was, in fact, the fish, the ichthys, which is what we've got there. And somebody said, why, why don't we have a cross? And why isn't the cross standing straight like it is on all churches? And I'll tell you why. Because that church, because that symbol, that cross, is positioned to be carried. All you do is stick your shoulder under that cross and away you go. Because this is what it means to be a Christian. And that's what it means to be part of cross church. We are a people who follow Christ, who take up our cross and follow him. Listen, everybody wears crosses. I mean, punk, punk bands, uh, Satanists, they all, they're all wearing crosses. But our cross is positioned to be carried because it represents a life that is dead to self, a life that has given up its self-centered ways. Back in 1988, I was uh, in the ministry for about five years. I was preparing to go to Greece. I'm going to close with this. And uh, Jimmy Swaggart, some of you may or may not know him. Uh, he was one of the, he's probably at that time the greatest, best known evangelist in North America and in the world. He had over 3,000 TV stations and cable spots, cable uh, um, station systems. He had an operating budget of over $200 million. And, I mean, that's massive by today's standards. But back then, it was, it was just an amazing amount of money that he was pulling in through his TV programs. He had a weekly te- television program. It, he had crusades around the world. He was a featured speaker at most Pentecostal conferences. He, uh, he was a, a vocalist. He played the piano. He had all kinds of Grammy nominations for his albums. He had a Bible school. He had a church. He had a magazine called The Evangel. I mean, it just went on and on. This man was sort of the giant of the day. 
One Sunday morning, I woke up listening to the news on the radio, and the announcer announced that Jimmy Swaggart had been caught with a prostitute and was forced out of the pulpit. Now, some of you maybe are old enough to remember that, and you might be old enough to remember his very tearful and dramatic confession of sin on, on national international TV. But I remember that morning. It's one of those moments I will never forget. I remember that morning getting up to, to preach at the church in Carberry. It was sort of the, the church that I had to pastor on my own for a few months before I could go to the mission field. But I remember looking in the mirror that morning, and I, and I, I remember saying to myself, how, you know, half unto God and half to myself, if Jimmy Swaggart could fall, if Jimmy Swaggart couldn't make it as a believer, how on earth am I going to make it? I mean, what hope is there for the rest of us pastors? Remember, he's, a, he's in the ministry, so this is a special significance to me because I also am in the ministry. And I felt the Holy Spirit speak to my heart. I didn't hear an audible voice, but I felt the Holy Spirit saying, Alan, I just want you to, to, to stop and listen to me now. And I got on my knees into the living room, got on my knees, got my Bible, and I began to pray and said, God, give me courage and give me something that shows me how I can make it so that I also don't go through this. I'd rather die than go through that. The Lord brought to my memory a passage of Scripture, first, the second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. And this is how it goes, verse 3. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those that God has called and chosen. Do these things, and you will never fall. Do these things and you will never fall. I felt in that moment, I felt the darkness, I felt the weight, I felt the burden of this horrible report lift from my shoulders and I felt the Holy Spirit speaking to me and saying, Alan, you don't need to fall. You don't ever have to fall because God has given you everything you need to live a godly life. God has given you everything you need so that you don't have to fall, so that your marriage doesn't have to be ruined, so that your family doesn't have to fall apart, so that you don't have to lose your job, so that you don't lose it all. But here's the thing, folks. If you're going to live this life that's godly, this life that is full of purpose and meaning and joy and peace, then here's what you got to do. you got to deny yourself. That is, got to stop living for yourself and pursuing your selfish ways. you got to take up your cross. That means die to yourself and give the agenda to God. Give your life to God. Give your, give your visions, your dreams, all your hopes and wishes. Give it all to God and say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to do what you want me to do. And then the next thing you have to understand is that you have to follow him. That's what he says. Can you put that verse back up or is that up there? Put up that verse again, please. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, the disciples followed Jesus for three years. Listen to me. They were with him when he went to sleep. They were with him when he woke up. They were with him when he ate. They were with him when he prayed, when he preached, when he did miracles. I mean, they got to know Jesus so well that they knew when he was mad, when he was glad, when he was sad. 
They knew when he was angry. They knew when he was happy. They knew what his reaction would be before he ever reacted to anything. They knew Jesus, and they knew him well. Folks, I want to tell you something. If you're going to live this Christian life, you need to understand the dailiness of it. I'm, it's, dailiness is not in the dictionary. I'm just making up a word here, but you get the point. It's daily. It's a daily thing. If you think you can live your Christian life from Sunday to Sunday, I'm going to tell you right now, it ain't going to work. You're going to be in misery. You're going to think, look, I don't know what's going on. How come it's not working, Pastor? I tried Christianity, but it doesn't work. Man, I've heard that a hundred times. You show me somebody who said that, I'm going to show you somebody who thinks Christianity is something that you do at Christmas and at Easter and once in a while. Listen, Christianity only works on a daily basis. Does everybody get this? You've got to do it every day. And what is it that you do every day? Well, you've got to do what the disciples did. They got to know Jesus. What did they do? They talked with him and they listened to him. And this is what I talk about all the time. If you're going to have a relationship, you, it's, there's got to be communication. I see couples here. I see husbands and wives here. I'm going to tell you, you don't have a relationship if you don't talk. And so it is with your walk with God. You need to, God to speak to you, and you need to speak to God, and it's got to be every day. How, do, how does God talk to you? Well, some may have heard an audible voice, but I doubt very much that that's how God's going to talk to you. I'll tell you how he is going to talk to you, however. He's just going to talk to you through his word. And if you read that every day, he will talk to you every day. And how do you talk to God? Well, we call that prayer. Now listen, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to deny yourself, you need to take up your cross, and you need to follow him. You need to be with him every day. And my Bible says that if you do that, You'll never fall. Your marriage is going to make it for the long haul. You're, fa- you're going to have an awesome family. You're, it means you're going to do well at work. It means you're going to, your finances are going to get themselves sorted out. It means, it means that you will know a measure of joy and happiness that you didn't th- even think possible. But folks, it comes from trusting that Jesus really knows what he's talking about. And it means that you've got to completely and fully surrender to Christ. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you this morning for your presence here. We want to say thank you for your word. God, you're calling us to to true followership, to true discipleship. You said if anyone would be your disciple, that they must take up their cross and follow you. God, I pray that you give us the grace and the wisdom today to respond to the truth that we've heard that we would understand, oh God, that turning from our selfish ways and taking up our cross daily, although at first it seems difficult and it maybe seems even impossible, God, help us to understand that ultimately this is the only way we'll ever know joy and happiness and fulfillment in this life. So God, we pray right now for the grace to accept the truth. We pray for the grace to live this truth. I pray that everyone here today would understand that Serving Christ is a daily activity. It's not a weekly, not just a weekly, not just an occasional activity. It's something we do every day, walking with Jesus and knowing Christ. So we commit ourselves to you now, Father, thanking you for your goodness, thanking you for your love. And everyone said it with me. Tell that person beside you, hey, take up your cross.